Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show. Paul Winkler talking money and investing here as always and joined Mr. Jim Wood hanging out here with me for this hour. Good day, sir. Man, good day, eh? <laughs> and then so the, the guys from the Bob and... Bob and Doug McKenzie. Uh, it's going to be that time. They have the Christmas song. We'll probably be hearing that. <laughs> That's going way back. Those of you younger people have no clue what we're talking about. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's exactly it. All right. So, uh, yeah, we talk about finances and uh, help clear up some of the myths of investing and some of the myths that are out there. It just seems like there are so many people out there giving guidance without a lot of uh, academic backing to what they're saying. More about that. Other times, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> so Jim, I, I'll let you kind of run. What do you got? Uh, I figured let you throw out some topics, and I'll just respond. Well, that sounds good. I, I've been doing a little bit of reading, and uh, let's talk about an article. This is from uh, Michael Kitz's website, kitzes.com. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so you know where Michael does a lot of work is. Uh, you'll you'll find a lot of the college work and financial planning. You'll see articles, things written. He has something called the nerd's eye view because uh, he's very nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And this was uh, written by Larry Swedrow. But um, avoid getting I remember caught meeting up. Larry Did 25 you? years ago. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. good good researcher yeah, he in does, uh, does a good job. In, yes, um, does a real good you job. You know, academic research that type yeah. of thing, applied yeah. academics. For, for, um, but this is just avoid getting caught up in big market delusions mm-hmm. and particularly talking about a case study with electric vehicles. But I always think it's always a good topic, right? Bubbles in terms of people getting really, really excited about some new technology, some new product or something that has this vast use. There's a huge market for it. And so people say, yeah, I want to invest in that because that's going to make me rich. It's going to be the up and coming thing. You know, it's interesting because trying to predict the future on those types of things is just next to impossible. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, like the news would come out that the range on the vehicles would be much shorter than what was expected? Yeah. Uh, who would be able to figure out the geopolitical risks of investing in something where you need materials from other countries? Then you, who would predict that Exxon would actually start drilling for lithium in the United States? I mean, that's the latest thing. And it was in the news this week. They actually, and, you, and you, who would think it would be an oil company? Because what does everybody always say? Oh, you know, this conspiracy. Those oil companies are trying to buy up the technology and they buy it up and then they go and quash it. They, you know, they just destroy it so it doesn't compete with them. And lo and behold, you find out that Exxon's actually drilling, drilling in Arkansas. Uh, I think it was, uh, for lithium. Uh, you know, they're, they're looking for the next up-and-coming thing. So anyway. And that, that's what rational aside. companies do, right? They want to continue mm-hmm. to exist. If they think that there might be some future issue with their current products, they want to change or expand their product lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Case of a company that didn't do that, of course, Kodak. Oh, yeah. They invent the digital camera, and they decide that it's going nowhere. <laughs> Right. 
<laughs> Which is kind of funny if you think about it. Yeah. It's, it's going nowhere. And everybody's got one in their pocket now. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, and that's just it. People, there's new technologies. Historically, this has happened time and time again. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you look at the dot-com bubble. There's um, Housing bubble wasn't new technology, but it was a big market that, that kind of blew up again that people were throwing extra money at for a while. Mm-hmm. But time, and, and it even goes back to, you know, 1841, um, Charles McKay writing about the extraordinary um, popular popular delusions mm-hmm. and the madness of crowds. Mm-hmm. And, and even talking about that, so this is something that, you know, happens generationally. Yeah, the madness of, and, and uh, you know, of course, you look at the madness of crowds and they haven't changed. You know, people say the markets are so volatile now. They've always been volatile. <laughs> there have always been madness in crowds where they chase people, chase things. And I, you know, I, I love uh, Brent Malkiel's, you know, his whole history of that, you know, walking through, and he just walks back through the 1960s, as I recall. And, but you know, the madness of crowds, people get excited about things, they run them up, and they turn out to not be what they think they're going to be, or they're bigger than they think they're going to be, you know, one way or the other. They're wrong. Uh, and then, of course, people get hurt. Yeah, and, and that's just back to kind of a basic investing lesson. Investing isn't gambling and speculating. It's mm-hmm. not hoping you get lucky and you buy the company that's going to dominate this big new market. Mm-hmm. People think that you have to do that to be a successful investor, and it's just not true. And unfortunately, that's the message that they're fed constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so what makes this big market delusion? Well, uh, this article talks about you know four factors, and one of it is the degree of overconfidence, and that's not. Not only overconfidence investing, um, uh, overconfidence by investors mm-hmm. throwing their money at these companies, but mm-hmm. people running the companies that are just thinking that, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, dominate this marketplace and we're going to outperform and we're going to sell so much. And, and in, whether it's in their projections, their company documents or company culture, whatever it is, that they are driving um, just uh, overestimating essentially their own products and investment abilities. And, 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 and that, you know, Jim, it, it reminds me of the research on small cap growth stocks because you know, they were yeah. small companies that were growth oriented, really great companies, well run. And then what happens is you have the hubris of the CEO of the company thinking that they're better than they really are. They've got you know more prowess than they actually do. And oddly enough, that's one of the things that's in the data that doesn't make, seem to make sense to a lot of us is that small growth companies have had a lower rate of return from the 1920s than large companies have in any asset category, any area of the market in large companies. And it's that hubris, right? Yeah, officially known as the small cap anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, the size of the market. So, too, when, when they're looking out at, at looking at the potential, like this is something that everybody could use, mm-hmm. whether and, you know, like in this case, talking about electric vehicles. And, of course, it's not even mentioned in this article. But, of course, what this gets me thinking about is what's the latest craze that this completely describes is um, artificial intelligence. Oh, right? oh OK. It's OK. OK. Yeah, I mean, so it's the just, other. you know, it's everywhere now. All the companies are getting into it and tech companies were getting much, much higher valuations. Their stock prices were going up because of the potential and they're mm-hmm. not, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily bringing in any revenue or anything from, you know, artificial intelligence yet, but it's just like, oh, these companies, this is going to integrate and this is going to change everything. And it may very well change right, everything. Right. Well, and it was like technology in the late 90s. 
you know, it, it was, I would watch TV and I would just be shaking my head and go, this is the craziest thing going on out there. But bad news, bad news kept the market going up. If there was bad news, it kept the market going up because people were so worried about the pricing and, and what the Fed was doing back in, the, in, that, in that period of time as well. Sound familiar? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, people were looking at technology and go, man, this stuff is growing by leaps and bounds. And look, look where this could lead if it keeps going. And the problem was, is that when you look at the trajectory of information and how it affects you know, the, the valuations of companies, how it affects the possible growth rate of companies, it's not it's not a line that keeps going at the same level. You might have huge jumps in short periods of time, and it would be like saying, you know, you take a mutual fund, for example, and you get a mutual fund with a three-year track record, let's say, of 15% or something like that. And you go, wow, if I get a 15% rate of return every year for the next 20 years, here's how much money I'll have. I mean, that's not how markets work. They don't go straight up. And nor does the growth of technology. It'll go up, it'll plateau, and then you know, then you'll have your gains, and then all of a sudden people will notice that it doesn't have the growth rate that it did before, and then they recognize too late that they paid too much for investments, and those investments come crashing down in value. Hence, what happened in the tech bubble in the early part of 2000, 2001, 2002. Absolutely, and it's there's there's a name for this, and I wish I could come up with it because I read this, and and the concept always stuck with me, but the name didn't. But it's essentially looking at the impact of new technologies that the market tends to overestimate its initial impact, and that's think mm -hmm. of the tech the mm -hmm. dot com bubble mm -hmm. and all the money that was thrown at companies that crashed and burned eighty percent, you know, in the early two thousand one and two, but long term that technology sometimes is underestimated. Mm -hmm. so, so short term, you know, people bet on it and get huge valu mm. valuations that crash. But 10 years later, that it's technology is having a, really, a huge impact. Yeah, that's an interesting concept that it's actually underestimated in the long run, overestimated in the short run. Exactly. Yeah, so... And you think of the internet, and, and I mean, that's absolutely true, because yeah. all the things that were promised in, you know, early 2000, everything, compared to what things are, what's happening today. Right. A decade later. Yeah, it's much worse than we thought it would be. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> you know, talking about people's addictions, too. <laughs> so, you know, and, and talking about, like, what are some of the warning signs of this big market delusion? Well, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of media stories, a lot of media coverage. And I think that's what really drives so much of this. Mm -hmm. It's the next next hot thing. And or, mm. you know, this is exciting. This is going to change everybody's lives. And there's just the part of many of us that think, well, hey, how can I profit from that? I should buy that company because I might get rich mm -hmm. because you want to think, wouldn't it be great to have bought Amazon when it was public or, or Microsoft when it first came out or all those things. And so you, you start thinking that way, but that's not reality. That's, that's like hoping oh, to win the lottery ticket. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hindsight. And we think that we should have been that person that figured out which company was going to benefit the most. I was, I was doing some research this week because you know, so often I hear people say, you know, 12%, you know, look at for, look for mutual funds, rate of return should be 12% and look for funds based on short-term track record, three, five, and 10 year. You hear that type of thing. And one of the guys in here was actually going through, uh, Brian's been going through the C, C, um, CPA uh, exam work. And he says, oh man, he says, so often they teach that, look at five-year track record and they look at short-term performance, even in, those, in that curricula. 
And it's, it's really bad advice because you look at a fund that has had good past performance, they don't go on to repeat is the number one thing that we find. But the thing that I thought was really interesting, and I, I called them uh, a, uh, I call them Morningstar because they track virtually every mutual fund known to mankind, even funds that are sold outside the United States, ETFs, separately traded accounts, you know, separate accounts and things like that. And what I want to do, Jim, is I want to see what if you look back through history, how many funds have actually had that rate of return? Going back to, and I just arbitrarily chose the year 1970. You know, how many funds were available from 1970 till now, and how many funds have actually had that rate of return? And the answer, I didn't know how many there'd be. What about like 14,000 mutual funds out there now, something like that? Uh, yeah, I think twice that. Think, yeah. Well, I'm looking at you know single share classes, you yeah, know, without yeah. looking at multiple share classes. But you know, you look at that and you say, how many funds actually had that rate of return back to 1970? And the answer was two. And you go, well, what are your odds? Two out of you know maybe if you're talking 28,000 mutual funds or whatever, how many? What are your odds that you would have a bought? one of the two funds that had that rate of return and B, held on to it for that entire period of time. Right, and you didn't get it near the end when they had that great track record. And that's what happens with so many of these funds that get on a hot streak. People will pile into them after they've had the track record, mm -hmm. but that, they never get that track record. That's right, that's exactly right. Yeah, they, they look at something and go, wow, look at this, look at the return of this, and they assume it's gonna continue on. But you know wh what people don't recognize is where that comes from is from the sales side of the investing industry. If I can show you the track record of a mutual fund and you go, wow, this had a really great return, you're more likely to buy it because you think it's going to continue because you're subject as a consumer to the same biases. Now the investing people are subject to it because it moves product. It gets you to invest, it gets you to buy what they're selling. But you would be because you want to go toward it because instinctively we want to go toward pleasure. And you know, people don't recognize that's not what you look at, track record, but it's so often taught. And, uh, and this would be a perfect example of, you know, we look at something like a technology coming on and say, wow, look at, look at what it's done so far this decade. And look, look at this, how it's going to impact the world. And you may be right, it may impact the world that way, but the returns are, are gotten typically before you ever figure out that you want to invest in it. And then by then, the horse is out of the barn. Right, and we're wired to learn from experience. You put your hand on the hot stove, you burn yourself, you say, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And like you say, we want to move towards things that are pleasurable. If it's our favorite ice cream, we want to buy more of that. If we like pizza, we want to buy more of that. Mm -hmm. And it works great from a survivability, from living in a cave, trying to find food and things like that. But those same skills don't apply to investing. Exactly. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Investor Coaching Show right here on Supertalk 99.7 WT, and I'm Paul Winkler. He's Jim Wood. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. 
Everyone in the office is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. So we talked about um, the first one and the second one. Let's The, the first know. one, just reiterate for those who just tuned in. Um, I can do you, that. That's um, the overconfidence. Big market, big market stories, meaning that the, you see every time you open up the the, uh, the internet, your browser, or look mm-hmm. at any magazines or something, they're talking about these companies or this technology. And think um, artificial intelligence right now. That's okay. a perfect example. So kind of the bias would be availability. I think that that would be under that. Uh, that you have, that's what's in front of you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I okay. think that's a that's a good way to phrase it. Okay. Um, so number two, blindness to competition. So you, a lot of times, even when you're hearing about this stuff, you're always hearing about some company uh, that's kind of the, either the leader or the most well-known mm-hmm. or has a mm-hmm. personality attached to it or something. Mm-hmm. But whenever there's something like this, it's capitalism. There's going to mm-hmm. be competition. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people will forget that, that there's a lot of companies that are trying to succeed out here. And maybe just one or two out of many are going to be successful. And how likely are you to actually be able to, to just pick those winners? And what happens then is that all the companies tend to go up in value, even if at those valuations, even if all of them are successful, you won't get the revenue to mm-hmm. justify their stock prices. So if we were going to use a real life example here, it would be, let's look at cell phones and we look at Motorola, the inventor of the cell phone. And we think, wow, they're inventor of cell phone. They ought to do really, really well because people are going to be wanting to use cell phones. Now, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that Apple or Nokia would be the two companies that would be battling it out regarding cell phones. You know, you would think the inventor of that cell phone, and you don't think about the competition being so so well. It, it was look at the competition. I mean, it was just crazy how. These companies, these few companies battled it out, but we don't remember the losers in the battle. We only remember the winners. And it's kind of like whatever, you know, we often teach at workshops. Well, it's and, the companies teaching, they choose us. And along those lines, that's actually part of um, an example that um, they talked about oh, really? in this. But you think about Palm Pilot. Mm. Um, you know. Yes, I used to have one. Yeah, I, so I actually used to. I would, sure. People laughed at me. I had a Palm Pilot. I was one of the earlier adopters. I, I was here. a late adopter and actually kept it longer. By the way, after people had actually moved on to other stuff, mm. but that was spun off by 3Com at a valuation larger than General Motors. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And then, but after only a few years after that, though, they were out of business. That's incredible. Because of what? A, what an what an amazing statistic. Yeah, larger than General Motors. Right. That's and insane. A couple years later, they're out of business because of BlackBerry. I, I was, yep. Okay. Yep. Which was itself swinging on the ropes. Oh, I like that. Because of competition from Nokia. Nokia. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it's just like, you know, you know, you never know where that disruption is going to come along the way. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, it's just kind of making those big bets. Um, number three. These companies are all about growth. And so rather than sometimes sensible business plans or putting aside their business models or ignoring them mm-hmm. or deviating from them, they're 
pushing and pushing and pushing for growth, mm -hmm. which hurts the long-term viability of the companies. And all of a sudden the companies go as a video that we show our clients go poof. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> South Park. Right. Uh, uh, it's gone. Uh, yeah. And it's gone. No, we don't normally watch South Park around but it does. They do have a funny video about a bank. Uh, but yeah. So you look at that and say, wow, they're growing, they're trying to grow. And I think a lot of it is they're doing the best that they possibly can, but they don't necessarily know what the tastes and preferences of the public are going to be. So they may be growing in ways that are not necessarily where the public would like to see them go, but they're taking their best guess, but fashions change and tastes change. And therefore what happens, they throw money into projects that might work out wonderfully well. But they may also flop wonderfully, <laughs> uh, and not wonderfully, probably bad use of work. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's, uh, that is a challenge. Growth. You've got to grow. Grow or die. Yeah, and, well, and I think this, this fourth one is really related to number three, a disconnect from fundamentals. And so the, the result of all that stuff is the mm -hmm. companies throughout the industry become completely disconnected from their fundamentals like earnings, revenue, and things that people measure a company's success by. And it's just all about potential, potential growth, that type of thing. And to me, that's just describing the tech bubble. Right. I mean, you, there's yeah. lots of other examples about that. And, but and, and it's hard to fault them for that in a way, because you can have a company that has a lot of expenses and they've got no revenue and their company stock may be selling for 100 times earnings. But all of a sudden, let's say that you get your your expenses down just a little bit and your earnings up a little bit. You can be back into normal territory under 20 pretty quickly. Well, uh, what I remember about this type of this idea is that when I first got into the industry, somebody was giving us a talk about um, some of the tech stocks and talking about, I believe it was pets.com. There was a talking sock puppet yeah, or something. Yeah, that was used as an example a lot. Sure. Absolutely. And that that company having a higher market capitalization than major airlines that owned hundreds of planes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that is ridiculous. Exactly. That's a, that's a really good example because we do see that. We even saw it with, uh, remember GameStop? Yeah. Oh yeah. The meme and, stocks. Absolutely. And that one went up like crazy. And then everyone's like, wow, is it going to keep going? And you go, good grief, what are you doing? And, you know, I, I remember being interviewed, uh, Pamela Fur actually was interviewing me and, and talking to me about it. And she said, she goes, what's going on? I says, it's a greater fool theory. What will people pay Who's the next person that might pay a little higher price for this thing, whatever it may be, than I did? Right. And then people think it's just going to keep going up, but there's no fundamental reason for it to be selling for what it's selling for. Because what you're buying when you buy stock is you're buying the rights to the earnings of the company. You're also buying the assets of the company as well. So it's typically something we look at. We look at both of those things, book values and those types of things. And quite often you – and I'm not saying that you use this to determine – you know, which stocks to buy, which stocks not to buy, but this is what markets do. It's, you're not going to be able to use this information, in other words, to, you know, increase your returns through your just brilliant prowess and, and uh, anything like that. Uh, because I was just, it just reminded me of a conversation I was having with a, uh, a friend of mine this week, and she was talking about a friend of hers that was all into, you know, she was talking about, you need to yank all of your money out of this bank, her friend goes. And she says, what do you think? What do you think, Paul? And I said, 
I said, well, number one, I asked her about the amount of money she had in the bank. We were talking about FDIC limits. We were looking at what happens typically when banks get taken over and so on and so forth. I wasn't going to give her any kind of guidance on whether that particular bank was going to go under. It was a very large bank. But, you know, the thing that she was talking about is that the stock market is just a, you know, it's being rigged by the rich. And I said, oh, really? Well, how is it then that the rich, if you look at the growth in the wealth, the research that has been done on the growth of the wealth of the richest people in the world, why has it been lower for the vast majority of them than the stock market growth of the last 30 years? Now, there are a couple of anomalies that we can pick out for sure. They're the winners of life's lottery. But the reality of it is most wealthy people can't get returns that are higher than the market when it really gets down to it. If it were really rigged, who would rig it? Those really wealthy people. And they would be getting huge returns out of doing that. And she goes, wow, good point. And I said, yeah. And, and the reality of it is that there are too many players in this thing called the market to rig it. It's not like where you can corner the market in some areas that, you know, you've seen this, seen stories about that in the past where, you know, certain things, commodities, where the market has been cornered or the supply has been controlled in those areas. You don't have that same thing happening in markets. So it's a lot of this stuff, you know, you get people that, um, that they hear things, they get scared, they make decisions based on emotional types of criteria. And, you know, I, 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 this lady, we were, we were just talking about, I says, you know, you look back a couple, couple thousand years and people were quitting their jobs because, and, and Paul, Paul the Apostle told them, you know, don't quit your job. You're not going to eat if you don't work. <laughs> and it's like conspiracies aren't anything new. <laughs> but, um, yeah, go ahead, Jim. No, I'm just saying, you think of all the rich people that have been in the news over years. So you think it's rigged for the rich, but think of all the rich people that were taken advantage of by Bernie Madoff. I oh, mean, yeah. there, there's a laundry list of celebrities and even, you know, billion-dollar investment managers that lost money. And, and there's, there's lots of other things where they've been scammed individually or as groups and things like that. And if it was all about just the rich, then, you know, like I said, there wouldn't be that many stories like that. Yeah, for sure. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.